And we are so glad that you are here as we begin our brand new journey here in Lee Summit in Cass County. And you know, there are some moments in life that, uh, that you never forget. We all have those moments, right? I mean, things happen that you remember every single minute detail of it. You remember what time you woke up. You remember how the weather was, what you wore that day, who you saw, what you ate. I mean, you can just remember every detail of everything that happened that day. But days like these, believe it or not, are not days that you remember every moment of. Days like today are more like your wedding day that are just so busy. Not that I don't remember every detail of our wedding day. It was phenomenal, dear, and I love you very much. Um, but, you know, your wedding day, like, goes by so quick. You look back on your wedding day, and all you remember doing is taking pictures, right? I mean, that, that's the only thing that I remember doing for any extended period of time was taking pictures. We took so many pictures that when we finally got to the reception, all the food was gone, and I didn't get to eat anything but cake at my own wedding reception. It was just one of those days. And today has been a wild and crazy day all day long. We, we got here about 6 a.m. and started setting up. And I know when I go to sleep today, I'll, I won't remember most of it. But there are some things, some moments in life that you remember every detail of. And one of those moments for me happened when my son was three years old. I have two kids. My son is 10. My little girl's seven. She'll be eight in about six weeks. And one of my favorite memories in life happened with my son when he was three about seven years ago. We had been out, I, I had been playing at a slow pitch softball game with some, some buddies from my church, and we'd been out one night, we had a doubleheader late on a Thursday night, and by the time the game got over, I was just, I mean, absolutely filthy, covered in the dirt of a, of a ball diamond, and Christian had come, and he brought his little glove and his little bat, and he, you know, he had a little ball behind the dugout, and when he got in the car after the game, he was dirtier than I was. I mean, we were just both filthy. So we got home and, and did what dads and sons do. We, we made a great memory. You know, he had to take a bath and go to bed. I had to get cleaned up. So I asked him, hey, do you want to take a bubble bath? And he said, yeah. So we, we created this, I mean, huge bubble bath, a mountain of bubbles in the tub in Danielle and I's bathroom. And, and we jumped in together and we poured all his toys in there. And I mean, Batman and Spider-Man had a major war and the Hot Wheel cars were flipping in the, in the tub and out of the tub. And we made Santa Claus beards and huge white hair. I mean, it was just, it was a moment that I can, that I can remember every instant of. And we got out of the, the tub that night and, you know, I taught him how to, for the first time, wrap a towel around his waist like a man does when he stands at the, the mirror and gets his hair ready or shaves or whatever. And, and we went into my bedroom and we started to play. And, you know, I, I want my son to be tough. And so we were kind of roughhousing a little bit. And I, I may have hit him with a pillow and knocked him over. I don't know what we did, but we started roughhousing a little bit on the bed. And I shoved him and he shoved me. And, of course, we're just both in our towels and we're there playing. And, you know, he's hitting me and I'm hitting him with a pillow. And he kind of gets me down on the bed and, you know, he's jumping on my back and slapping my head. And we're playing around having a great time. And he, he does like a full cannonball at the age of three and lands right in the middle of my spine with both his knees. And, I mean, about knocked the wind out of me. I thought, ah, oh, that was a good one. And as I laid there, I thought, you know what? I'm going to act like he killed me and see how he reacts to that. Now, how that makes any sense at all to want to know how your son would react to him killing you at three... I don't know, but that was my thought. I, you know, I'm going I'm to make him think I'm dead. So I just laid there just as still as could be. And yeah, he starts tapping my back. Dad, dad, and nothing. And I thought, you know, he's really concerned. He really loves me. And then he started digging his finger in my ear. And I thought, maybe not. You know, and he's trying to, you know, surely he's awake. And, you know, I'm able to kind of move my head around. And he starts trying to put his hands in my eyes. And I'm able to move my eyes around. And he does just another full gainer on my back thinking, you know, that killed me. Maybe it'll bring me back to life. You know, and nothing. And I thought, you know, now he's getting worried. I mean, he, you know, he loves his dad. Surely he's getting worried now. And it goes silent for a few minutes. And I thought, 
He's gone. He went to tell his mother that he killed me, that he's sorry, that he can't live without me. And as I'm thinking all this with no noise anywhere, I feel something on my back. And I thought, what in the, what in the world is that? He wouldn't hit me. He wouldn't jump. And I just felt something on my back. I thought, what, what in the world? And I look up and he's standing over me, towel off, peeing on me, <laughs> laying in the middle of the bed. The biggest smile on his face. He's just peeing all over me. And he was saying to me, Dad, man, I'm going to get your attention one way or another, Dad. And you're going to know that I'm still here. You know, a few years ago, God didn't pee on me, but he began to get my attention about ministry and life and church. And about two years ago, I just started to rethink the way that I was doing church. I'd been doing church very well. I'd been a youth pastor. We'd seen hundreds of kids uh, start a relationship with Jesus, become Christians, have their lives radically transformed. But my life began to be about church, more about church than Christianity. You know, I lived to get people to church, and it seemed like all my effort was put into church. And I thought, you know, am I living my life more for church or for God? And I started a two-year process where, where I just began to rethink who I was, what I was created to do, and whether my priorities were messed up spiritually. And that two-year journey, after a, a long two years, has led to the, the launch of this brand new church here in Lee Summit that we call Journey Church International. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to James chapter 1 with me. Because the next few weeks, we're going to study the book of James together. And if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are going to come down the aisle, and they have Bibles. If you want one, just raise your hand. They'll give you one. If you forgot one, if you don't have one, you can keep this. But we'd love for you to have a Bible. I was at a Calvary Chapel service several years ago. I saw the ushers handing out Bibles, and I thought, man, if I ever have a church, I want to do that. I want people to be able to have a Bible if they need one. And we're in the book of James, which is right after the book of Hebrews, I I think, in my Bible, if I can find it there. There it is. And we're going to be in James chapter 1. And I want to talk to you a little bit about church. And, and let me say this at, at the very outset of our church. You know, today's September 18th, 2011. We're starting a brand new church in Lee Summit. But let me say this. Lee Summit already has churches. They have great churches. Uh, I've met some unbelievable pastors here in Lee Summit that are doing churches just miles from here. And we are by no means the first church to come into this community. Nor are we by any means the best church to be in this community. Nor by any means... Does the community just need us? It needs every church that this city has to offer. And you need to understand that. And if you came to our church and maybe there's some things you like but don't like, we can give you some great advice on other churches that you can visit. Because there's some great churches doing some great things in Kansas City. And today we're joining their team. We're not starting something brand new. We're just joining the team of churches in Kansas City trying to do things the right way. But in the book of James, something very, very interesting happens. James wrote a book that we'll study for the next seven weeks, and he wrote it to his church. But I want you to hear this. James is a pastor, and he writes a book to his church that's never coming back to church. That's what you need to understand about the book of James. It's a written sermon to a church that will never come back to church again. And the content of the book of James is is really what happens when you have to rethink the way you do church. What happens when you can't get out of bed on Sunday morning and go to church anymore And hear a pastor teach you the Bible and and hear some worship music and drink some coffee. How do you live for God when you don't go to church anymore? That's what the book of James is about. The book of James is filled with information that we're going to study the next few weeks of of things that are more important than just going to church. And there's a lot of people who go to church but don't do anything else spiritually. The book of James is written about all those things you need to do besides going to church. Things like finding out how to have spiritual wisdom in your life. We'll talk about that next week. 
Things like trying to, to figure out how to pray. You know, we often talk about prayer, but not very many people really know how to pray. The disciples didn't know how to pray. After watching Jesus do it, they said to him, how do you, how do, you do that? How do you pray? The book of James is, is filled with information uh, about needing to have more than just Christian faith, needing to have Christian actions. James actually asked this question. If you call yourself a Christian, but you don't do anything Christians do, are you really a Christian? And he answers it and says, I don't know. A lot of people go to church, call themselves Christian, but don't do anything that Christians are supposed to do. Are they really Christians? We're, we're going to answer that question. James says that's, that's as, as important as, as just going to church. He has an entire chapter in his book about not being hypocritical. Man, that's a, that's a great message for people who call themselves Christians to hear, right? You can go to church all you want, but then if you're a hypocrite outside of church, you know, you're probably going to give a mixed message about who God is. He has an entire chapter about how to develop spiritual patience when you're going through a really discouraging time in your life. Like when nothing in your life is going right. You've lost your job, your marriage is falling apart, your kids are in jail. Maybe you just found out you're sick. Maybe you just had a huge expense you don't know how you're going to pay for. When things are really hard, how do you not quit? How do you not give up during those times in your life? James teaches us that. And then James teaches us about rescuing people who are dying spiritually. Things more important than just going to church. Things that really help us live for God. That's what the book of James is about. But probably the greatest story in the book of James is not anything in the book, but the person himself. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. We're only going to read one verse, the first verse of the book of James. And I want to talk to you today about this man named James. He was Jesus' half-brother. It's an interesting spot to be in in life. And I want to show you the spiritual journey that James went on, because it's a spiritual journey that all of us go on. And I'm going to show you four points of his journey today, and and all of you are at one of those points. All of us are always at one of those points. And I want to talk to you about what a spiritual journey to, to really transformation looks like by looking at the life of James. Here's how James starts out his book. In James 1, verse 1, it'll be on the screen behind me. And I hope you'll take your pen that we've given you in, in the notes. You'll be able to fill in a few blanks and write some other stuff if you want to. But here's how James starts his book. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Short verse, we'll read it one more time. By the way, 2,000 years ago, if you wrote a letter, you put your name at the front, not the back. That's why it looks like he's writing it to James, but this is actually him. Today we sign our name at the end. 2,000 years ago they signed it at the beginning. Here's who I am, here's what I have to say. So he said, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Today I want to talk to you about James because he's one of the most interesting characters in the entire Bible. And his story is fascinating. James is not just another guy. As a matter of fact, two of the 12 disciples are named James. He's not either one of those guys. He's a totally different guy. But his story, when you read it, is fascinating because here he is writing a book of the Bible. But man, he does not start. When we meet him in Scripture, he doesn't start with any type of spiritual qualifications that would make us want to read what he has to say spiritually. As a matter of fact, I want to take you on four glimpses inside his story and show them to you. And the first glimpse we see inside the life of James, first time we see James anywhere in the Bible, we see he's got this real critical heart towards Jesus. It's the very first time we see him in the Bible. And and I don't want to say he hates his brother, but he's got a real critical heart towards Jesus and, and what he thinks Jesus is trying to do. And I, I want to be honest with you. Believe it or not, I get this. Can you believe if... Do you know how hard it would be to have your older brother be Jesus? You know how annoying that would be? 
My older sister is here, and, and she was the valedictorian in the school. So I can't even say it. That shows you how smart I am. The valedictorian in, in our school that my dad was the principal at. You know how annoying it is when your sister, who's a year ahead of you in school, is the smartest person in the school, your dad's the principal, and teachers look at you and expect you to be the same way? I wasn't the valedictorian or the salutatorian or the janitorian. I mean, I was happy to graduate and play sports. I mean, that's, you know, that, that was good enough for me. You know, and it was annoying to always have Jill be the s- smartest person around. Can, can you imagine, James, how annoying it would be to have Jesus as your brother? He draws a picture of a bird for his mom and dad and runs it in the house. And look at the picture, you know, this ugly little picture of this little bird drawn. And Jesus, like, does this little whistle thing and one flies into his hands, like, out of the air. <laughs> or he, like, grabs some mud and, like, creates a real bird. I'm sure James looked and said, you know, I got nothing. I hate him. I, I hate him. I understand why you would be critical of a brother who says that he's God and then begins to back it up. And one of the first times we see James in Scripture is John chapter 7, verse 25. This is the first time he speaks in Scripture. And look at his words to his brother. This should be on the screen behind me as we see his heart towards what Jesus is trying to do. John 7:25 says, When the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. Look at verse 4. No one who wants to become a public figure, nobody who wants to be famous, does all his acts in secrets. Since you're doing all these things, show yourself to the world, for even his own brothers didn't believe in him. His brothers looked at him, they had a real critical heart. Now, the interesting thing about John chapter 7, the, the chronology is that Jesus had just fed 5,000 people with, like, no food at all. I mean, he'd done the biggest miracle in the Bible. And James looked at him, and James said this, you're just doing that to become famous. You're not really God. Now, how someone who's not really God is able to create enough food for 5,000 people out of nowhere, I don't know. But James looked at him, and he said, I don't believe you're anything special. And he said, you just want to become famous. And he said, look, if you want to become famous, you need to go to a bigger city and do all your little stuff. Because then at least more people know who you are. And it said because James didn't believe in him. Now there's a lot of people in the world today that have a critical heart towards Jesus for one reason or another. Something has happened in their life. Something has happened in their family. They've had a bad experience with church. They've had a bad experience with religion. They've met some fanatical Christian person that's judged them or turned them off. And they have a very critical view towards church. Maybe they hate it. A very critical view towards God. Maybe they hate Him. And a lot of times I can understand it. I mean, I hear the scenarios of how things go and what has happened at churches and what has happened in life and horrible tragedies that have happened. And and people say, you know, if if this is God, I I don't want any of Him in my life. And I get it. And that's where James was. James wanted no part of it. He said, you know, you fed some people, cool. You say you're God, cool. Heard you walked on water, cool. I don't care. I don't care. I don't want you in my life. And we see James kind of pushing Jesus away. And maybe that's where you are today. Or maybe that's where someone in your family is today. Maybe you've seen both the good side and the bad side of Christianity, Jesus, religion. And you say, I've seen the good stuff, but I just, I can't buy it. I just don't believe it. And you have a critical heart. I'm not asking you today to not have a critical heart. I'm asking you today to just open it enough to get to where James was in in point number two. See, James, the first time we see him in Scripture, has a really critical heart. 
He doesn't care. He doesn't believe. He doesn't want any of it. But the next time we see him in Scripture, he has a questioning heart. He's progressing spiritually. He's gone from just angry and turned off to at least interested. And we see this in Mark chapter 3. And in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21... Again, Jesus is doing a lot of ministry, and we find this time his brothers didn't stay home. Last time James said, I'm not going with you. Go to the feast, do your miracles. I don't care about you. Here he's at least following Jesus around. And here's what happens in Mark chapter 3. It says, Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples couldn't even eat. And when his family heard about it, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. And how many times have you met a Christian who's really on fire, and you just think, they're crazy. You know, that, that person is crazy. They've lost their minds spiritually. You know, James went from telling Jesus, I don't believe in you, to looking at him and saying, okay, clearly there's something to this, but, you know, you've lost your mind. You've got to have lost your mind to be talking like you are and living like you are and believing you are who you are. But the most interesting thing about knowing that James had a questioning heart is this fact. The Bible has 66 books. You may or may not know that. Really, it doesn't even matter. That that won't help you get to heaven to know the answer to that question. Divided into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the books of the Bible were not written sequentially, which means they weren't written one after another. They they follow a, a historical timeline, but the books weren't put in the order that they were written in, which means if one was written in 2001, 2002, 2003, 2004, 2005, that they were lined up oldest to newest. They weren't written like that. As a matter of fact, the first book in the New Testament is Matthew, but Matthew was not the first book written in the New Testament. Actually, James is the very first book written in the New Testament chronologically. He was the first person to put a pen to a paper or a quill to a papyrus and to begin to write. He was the very first person to ever write any New Testament scripture. Here's what's interesting about that. James talks more about the information in the Sermon on the Mount than any other New Testament author. If you read the book of James and go back and read the Sermon on the Mount, James references, sometimes quoting, sometimes references, the Sermon on the Mount more than any other New Testament author. Here's the interesting thing about that. The Sermon on the Mount had not been written down yet when James wrote his book. He couldn't go read the book of Matthew and say, you know, that's a really good sermon. I, you know, I'm going to take some points out of that. You say, well, how did he know what Jesus said? Well, he had to be there, right? I mean, here he is. He doesn't believe. Last time we heard him, he basically told his brother, I, I don't care for you. I don't believe in you. Yet here he is kind of hanging out in the crowd. And you know what he's doing? He's got this questioning heart that's thinking, you know, I don't believe in this stuff yet. But I'm going to watch. And I'm going to listen. And I'm going to see if he is who he says he is. I'm going to see if his life matches his message. I'm going to see if he practices what he preaches. I, I'm going to hang around Jesus. I'm not going to place my faith in him. But I'm going to watch him. I'll let him prove himself to me. Now, this is a better place to get. And believe it or not, I I think this is where the majority of the people in Kansas City are. Do you know that 8 out of 10 people in Kansas City don't go to church anywhere on any given Sunday? Over 1.6 of the 2.1 million people in Kansas City don't go to church on Sunday morning. So do you think they're atheists? No. you think they hate God? No. What do I think they're doing? I, I think they probably have a questioning heart. They're waiting. They're watching. They would love for somebody to prove that they really love God and will live for God. But they're kind of hanging in the background. They're listening. They know the songs. They know the messages. They know what Christians say, but they're watching to see if their life matches their message. They're watching to see if they practice what they preach. And that's what James is doing in Mark chapter, in, in Mark chapter 3. He's hanging around ministry. 
obviously we look at his book and we know he's hanging around ministry. Now listen, if you hang around this ministry long enough, you'll see us do a lot of things wrong. Many times we won't practice what we preach, unfortunately, because we're not perfect. And our dreams are a lot bigger than reality. And if you hang around me long enough, you're going to realize that I am no more spiritual. I'm probably less spiritual than you. I'm not perfect. I don't claim to be perfect. I'm going to say things I have to apologize for. I, I say something at least once every other sermon that Daniel tells me in the car after. You shouldn't have said that. Preacher shouldn't say that from, from the stage. And I even thought one of those things earlier and didn't say it because I knew you'd yell at me when we got in the car. And I thought, eh, I shouldn't say that. It's about our wedding night, not our wedding day, which I remember vividly. And I thought, yeah, Danielle would not want me to say that. So I won't say that. But I thought it. Every now and then I think stuff like that. You know, I'm not the Pope. I'm not Jesus. I, you know, I wish I could be more, more like Jesus, not the Pope. But, but I'm not. And James looked, and you know what? I, I don't know that he was expecting perfection, but I think he was expecting sincerity. And we live in a world today where 8 out of 10 people in our city, I think, are watching and saying, does anyone, I mean, do they really care? I mean, are, are like, they're just going to have church to draw a crowd? Are they really going to help hurting people? Are they going to feed the poor? Are they going to clothe the naked? Are they going to go visit people in prison? Are they going to help us when we're hurting? Do they even care? And I think when, when people see that we really care, I believe they'll give Jesus a chance. Because when he meets them, when, when they need him, he can change your life. And that's where we see James the next time we see him in Scripture. First time we see him, critical heart. Man, really cold towards who Jesus is. Next time, questioning heart. He, he's around the periphery of the ministry. Just watching, taking it in, not believing. But he's around it. But then we see him once in Scripture where he has a tender heart towards Jesus. It's not wide open. It's, you know, he, he's not begging Jesus, save me, save me, save me. But his heart has been softened. And because his heart is soft, he meets Jesus at a time when, I'll be honest with you, when, when he needs something more. He meets Jesus when life has been hard. He meets Jesus at a time where he's been laying awake at night thinking, I don't like the life that I live. He meets Jesus during a week where he cries himself to sleep at night. He meets Jesus during a time where he's contemplating you know, whether or not his marriage is going to make it or whether or not he's going to lose his job or whether or not he wants to live anymore. That's, that's where he is in point number three. And boy, when he meets Jesus at this time, something really crazy happens. You know, how did his heart get so soft? Through tragedy. He watched his brother die. And you know what? Even if you don't like your brother die, when you go through a, a tragic event, he watched his brother beaten and then killed, that'll make your heart soft. And, and two things happen when you go through tragedy. Your heart either gets really hard and stays that way until kind of the callus wears off and then your heart gets tender. Or your heart immediately gets tender. I got called last night by a great friend of mine who runs a funeral home. And he said, Christian, I need you to do a funeral this week. Have you been watching the news? I said, no. He said, a 24-year-old girl got shot and her four-month-old daughter got shot. And their funeral is going to be at my place. And I'd like you to come officiate the funeral. I, I, you know, I know it's going to be really tough for this family. Can you come do that? So was it one funeral or two? He said, two. They're going to put the little baby or one. They're going to put the baby in the casket with the mom. Can you come do the funeral? Man, that's tough. There's going to be a lot of tender hearts there that day. And you know, sometimes when a heart is tender, all the criticisms in the world of, the, of what they've seen spiritually don't matter anymore. All the questions in the world of what's happened skeptically, you know, all the you know, debates, it don't matter anymore. Like you just need someone to help you. You just need to be able to get past the next day. James 
went through one of these times. And we see that Jesus really kind of came to the rescue. You know, if you, if you hang around me a little bit, you'll, you'll know that I love sports. I know the Chiefs play the Lions at noon today. I'll make sure you're out and in your car, if not home, for kickoff. Because I believe God wants us all to be watching the Chiefs today at noon. I mean, that's a, it's a spiritual gift I believe I have to, to force people to watch sports. I love football. And my, I had a friend last year who, who bought me and my son Christian tickets to the Chiefs opening game last year. And if you remember last year, the opening game was on a Monday night, nationally televised game. They're reopening the stadium against the San Diego Chargers, club-level seats. And, I mean, it was like one of the most unbelievable experiences of my life. It was blowout. It was one of those moments that you never forget. And Christian and I got there real early, and we ate all this food that cost like thousands of dollars, it seemed like, for a sandwich. And we got settled into our seats, and we watched pregame, and the game got going. And if you remember that game, if you were there, if you watched it, about halfway through the second quarter, it started raining. And it started storming pretty bad. And, and my son, I may have one time let him watch an episode of, of, of Storm Stories with me. And it really freaked him out. So he's afraid now of thunder and lightning probably because we watched a town get blown away on TV at one point in time when he was too young to process that information. So we're sitting at the game and it starts thundering. It starts lightning. And Christian is freaking out. I mean, freaking out. Dad, we got to go. We got to go. We got to go. Dad, we're going to get struck by lightning. Dad, we got to go. We got to go. We got to go. I said, listen, man, we're under, like we're covered. Everyone else is running. Just sit here. Son, we got good seats. We're going to be fine. No doubt. We got to go. We got to go. We got to go. As Dexter McCluckster is returning the punt that he returned for a touchdown, like a, a big boom of thunder hits Arrowhead Stadium, and I'm up cheering for McCluster while he's making this great run, and I look down and Christian is gone. And he has started racing up club-level seats because he heard the thunder, and he's now sitting like 10 rows behind me by himself. And I turn around and said, what are you doing? He said, Dad, we got to go. And I said, son, what, where do you want to go? Dad, we've got to go home. Christian, Christian, it's the second quarter, son. We, we are not going to go home, right? It's not time to go home, Christian. Dad, we've got to go home. And he is like just, he's shaking, he's scared. And I saw him, I thought, I'm going to have to take him home. So I said, let's go up inside the club because we club level season. I said, we'll watch a game from inside. So we're sitting inside club level, protected windows, ceilings, everything. And, I mean, the rain is coming down in sheets, lightning everywhere, thunder, and we're trying to watch it on TV right as halftime's coming. And Christian is just, Dad, we've got to go home, we've got to go home, we've got to go home, we've got to go home. And I said, Christian, son, we're safer here than, than we are trying to go home. Our car is a mile from the stadium. So how do you expect to get home? I said, we can't walk to the car. He says, yes, we can. You can carry me. And I thought, now, son, I am not lightning-proof. And it's raining really hard. And, and we're parked a mile away. And he says, no, Dad, we've got to go home, and you've got to carry me. And, man, so I did what any good dad would do. You know, I said goodbye to the stadium at halftime. <laughs> Trudged out to the, the gate, and we're standing underneath the, the deal. I mean, rain just coming down in sheets, lightning, thunder. And we're standing under, and Christian's beside me. And I said, do you really want to do this? He said, if you carry me, we'll be safe. So I took my sweatshirt off, I put it on him, bundled him up, grabbed him in my arms, and said, all right, here we go. And man took off for a mile with this like 60-pound kid in my arms, just dying. Thunder, lightning, I thought we were going to die every 10 steps. Are you okay? Are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. Got to the car, sat him down. I'm getting ready to have like a level 5 heart attack at, the, at this point in time, just dying. And he looks over at me, he's got this kind of little sheepish grin on his face. He looked over and he said, thanks, Dad. 
Now, every now and then, you and I are going to go through a storm in life where all we need is for God to carry us. We don't need Him to answer questions. We don't need Him to prove Himself anymore. We just need to get from point A to point B and get there alive. And at the end of it, just say, thanks, God. And sometimes the questions don't get answered. And sometimes the criticisms still aren't justified. But sometimes you get to a place in your life where you just need God to carry you. And that's where James was. And we see an interesting verse. The Apostle Paul is actually the one that writes it. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul's talking about how Jesus died and, and, and came back from the dead to prove himself God. And he said this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7. Paul says, What I receive I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve, After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time, most of all who were still living, though some have fallen asleep. Verse 7, then he appeared to James. Stop right there. Jesus, on his tour of resurrection life, went and saw his brother. And, you know, critical James, who used to say, you know, who used to sit and quote, you're just trying to be famous. You're just trying to make money. You don't really care about people. Questioning James, who said, yeah, maybe he is the real deal had now become kind of tender-hearted James. He'd watched his brother die. And when Jesus showed up, I'm sure the conversation went something like this. Hey, I am who I said I was. And James put his total faith, his total faith in who Jesus said he was. Because he needed God at that moment in his life to do something powerful for him so that he could keep on living. And Jesus did that for him. And what happened was point number four. The very next time we see James in Scripture... We see a James who's transformed. He's not critical anymore. He's not questioning anymore. He's not tender and crushed anymore. Now he's been transformed. And his life is different forever. Now, let me ask you this question. Why is James writing this letter to a church? Why is James writing the first letter that's ever written in the Bible? I mean, James was not a disciple. James, before his brother died, did not even believe in Jesus, much less follow him, much less tell people about him. So here the very first person that writes the book of the Bible is James. Why? Because James became the leader, the key leader of the first church that ever happened. He was transformed by Jesus and he became the leader of the first century church. Anytime there was a question about, hey, what should the church do? You know what Peter and John said? Peter, James, and John, the three inner circle of Jesus? Anytime there was a key question in the church, they would say this. Let's ask James. It's like, you all are disciples. Like, you've been with Jesus for three years. You don't need to ask James. But every time there was anything officially done by the church, who spoke? James. James was so transformed, he became the leader of the church. Acts 15, 12 through 13, they're having a... A crucial question about who could, who could become a Christian and who couldn't. And they're having this big board meeting and they're all arguing back and forth trying to make a decision. And here's what happens. It says, The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul. These are two missionaries. Telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. The church was trying to make a decision. No one could decide. So James said, enough. Here's what we're going to do. He became the leader of the church. Now, you and I would have counted James out of bounds spiritually. We would have said, not him. 
Like he's only been a Christian a week. He can't do anything. His life's not been transformed. He needs to prove himself spiritually. But not James. We would have counted him out of bounds, but God said, no, I, I can use him. He's in bounds. You know, probably my, my favorite sport to watch on TV is college football. I don't know if any of you are college football fans like I am. I love Ohio State. I wish they quit cheating. I wish they quit ca- getting caught cheating because I think they're really bad this year. But I try to watch every Ohio State game. I watched football all day yesterday. From, from morning till evening, I was tuned in to, to what was going on. And a few years ago, they brought a rule change into college football where they've done it in the NFL for years where they review plays to make sure the officials got the call right. But they brought it into college football. And, and now in college football, every play that happens in college football is reviewed to make sure that, that it's going right. Now in pro football, a guy on the sideline has to see something he thinks is wrong on the field, and then he tells the official on the field, and the official goes to a box on the field, and they figure out everything down on the field. But in college football, it's not like that. In college football, there's a man upstairs. Get where I'm going here? Who sees everything. And the man upstairs sees people sometimes get it wrong down on the field. And the man upstairs buzzes the official. Says, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You might have got that wrong. And the official will stop the game and he'll say, the following play or the previous play is under review. And he won't go to a box because he doesn't have a box. He's waiting for the man upstairs to tell him if they got the call right or not. And after a few minutes, the guy on the field will come back down. The guy upstairs will tell him what's going on. And he'll get back on the microphone and he'll say this. Upon further review, and he'll say one of two things. Upon further review, the call is upheld. We got it right. Everything is as it's supposed to be. But sometimes he'll say this. Upon further review, the call on the field has been reversed. We didn't get it right. Man upstairs said it didn't happen like like we thought it happened. And you know what the life of James tells us as we study the life of James and we think he's out of bounds and God says he's not out of bounds? Looking at the life of James says this, after a further review, listen, everyone may have counted you out spiritually in life, but after further review, God says you get a second chance. After further review, your marriage does not have to end in divorce. After further review, the marriage that did end in divorce doesn't have to leave you depressed for the rest of your life. You can start over. After further review, the addiction that you have can be broken. After further review, the depression you're stuck in can go away. After further review, all the things that have happened in life that you think you can't ever get away from can be changed. After further review, the man upstairs says you can start over. Life has not been called off for you. You can have new spiritual life. And if our church stands for anything, our church stands to tell people that Jesus came and he was real. And that he lived a life and that he died, that he was buried, but he raised again. So that we could follow him as the Lord of our life and one day we could go through that same process. We could become perfect, forgiven, and eternal. And if you've not done that yet, regardless of what the world has said to you, let me say upon further review... Today can be a new journey for you. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes all over this auditorium? And as we get ready to to close this first service today, I just wonder how many in the room with heads bowed and eyes closed would say, you know what, the world may have counted me out, but I'm ready to start over. 
Maybe you're in the room today and you are not a Christian. Your heart has been critical. Your heart has been questioning. But something happened today to open your heart a little bit. And maybe today by faith. You know what that means? I, I, I can't have all the answers. But I just believe. Maybe by faith. Today you can say, Jesus, I need you in my life. I believe you're real. I believe you came. You died. You were buried. You rose again. And you can forgive me and give me eternal life. I can't answer all your questions, but I can tell you that much is true. Maybe you're in here today and, and you are a Christian who is so far from God. You used to really get engaged spiritually, but lately, man, you've been in a dark place and you need to come back to God. Maybe today you've just been kind of going through the motions. You're like I became the last decade. Christianity kind of centered around church. Go to church, go home from church, go to church, go home from church. And there's not much more than that. Life was intended to be more than that. With heads bowed and eyes closed across this gymnasium today. If you're in the room this morning and today you need to become a Christian. Today you, you realize you've never asked Jesus to forgive you of your sin. To come into your life. And to save you for eternity. You can do that. You say, well, what about this? Doesn't matter. What about this? Doesn't matter. What about my past? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Today you can start over. If that's you and you're in this room today, today you need to become a Christian. Just pray this prayer. You don't have to pray it out loud. You can pray it in your heart. Because God hears the prayers of your heart. Today you need to become a Christian. Just pray this prayer. Dear God, I need Jesus in my life. I believe that he came to live for me and to die for me and that he was raised from the dead proving himself God that he can forgive my sins and give me eternal life. Forgive me God for not being who you created me to be and help me now to try to live for you with heads bowed and eyes closed all over this room, if you just prayed that prayer, if you just became a Christian, would you just slip your hand up all over the gymnasium? Nobody's looking but me, but I'd love to know so I can just thank God for your decision this morning. We you just raise it up right now? Just raise it up and put it down. I wonder how many would say today, with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, I really need to get back in the game spiritually. I'm a Christian, but I've kind of been out of bounds and I thought it was over for me, but... Upon further review, I need to recommit my life and get going again spiritually. If that's you, just pray this prayer right where you're at. Again, you don't have to pray it out loud, but just say these words. God, forgive me for getting so far out of bounds spiritually. Help me to get back where I need to be. Change me. Help me today to live for you. And now, God, we, we all pray right now for people in our community, 8 out of 10, who aren't going to church anywhere. And God, I pray that if they watch us long enough, that they'll see we're sincere. Not perfect, but sincere. They'll see God really does care. Jesus is really real. He really does change lives. And that the church really does raise up to help people in need. That's what we're created for, and that's, that's what we're trying to do. I pray that will become the testimony of our church. Not how we sing or preach or how many donuts we have or coffee, but that our church really cares for people. Let that be the testimony. Let that be what people say about our church. And God, we'll just thank you if that happens. Thank you for today. Lord, it's been a great day getting this thing kicked off. 
We thank you even for allowing us to get it done in the rain. Bless us now as we prepare to go in a few moments. In Christ's name, everyone said, amen. Here's what I